Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DOD, industry, and other subject matter experts who explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. This week, we're taking a deep dive into China's view of some of the most cutting edge concepts shaping their vision of the future of warfare, informationization and intelligentization. China's military modernization over the past two decades has been sweeping in scale and scope. But the PLA's evolution is not just about amassing new hardware and weapons platforms. Fundamentally, China is attempting to pioneer their own new way of thinking about combat in the 21st century in what they call informationization and intelligentization. These concepts represent a break from the set-piece attrition warfare of the past and move toward a more dynamic, algorithm-driven model that leverages technology and the information battle space, including emerging technologies like artificial intelligence and autonomous systems. These ideas might seem like pie in the sky, but it is how China hopes to fight and win wars. Today, we will be decoding these concepts and discussing what they reveal about China's ambitions to become a world-class military. Now, to help me make sense of these ideas, I'm joined by two leading experts on China and machine learning who have been tracking the PLA's evolutions firsthand. Returning to the Aerospace Advantage, we have Dan Rice. For those of you who don't know Dan, Dan is the China Military and Political Strategy Subject Matter Expert at the Brute Krulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare at Marine Corps University and a non-resident fellow here at the Mitchell Institute. Well, Daniel Rice, it is so great to have you back on the Aerospace Advantage. Welcome back, my friend. Thanks. Like, it's awesome to be back here with you. Awesome. And, you know, I'm really excited to welcome Dennis Murphy. And Dennis researches the uses and implications of emerging technologies on international security at Georgia Tech. And he was recently awarded a fellowship to research generative artificial intelligence in international security and is an adjunct at the RAND Corporation. So, Dennis, welcome to the Aerospace Advantage. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. All right. Well, Dan, let's just dive right in here because, you know, I want to start by talking about the background here. So can you explain in simple terms how China thinks about warfare and how it differs from, you know, the American way of war that we saw during operations like Desert Storm or Enduring Freedom? And can you also help us understand what informationization and intelligentization mean? Yeah, absolutely, Slick. You know, that's quite a big question. But the bottom line is that China thinks about warfare in a more holistic way than we do in the U.S. And by that, I mean the PLA is a party army. And the CCP has the ultimate say in how they employ the PLA to – and that's the People's Liberation Army – to have political effects on the international stage. So they really think about war as much like Clausewitz said, it's politics by other means. And so as the PLA is employed by the CCP, they have an entire spectrum of different options that they can use to get the effect that they want. And that goes from 
pure quote-unquote peacetime employment of force all the way to up the conflict spectrum to employing the PLA in combat. So the strategy that goes behind that is a little bit different than the way that we do it here because it really means that the PLA has to be integrated into more aspects of society in China. And, you know, I was I was just pulling out uh, the science of military strategy. It's one of those big doctrinal books that the PLA has that guides their strategic thinking. And there's five aspects of strategic thinking in contemporary China. You've got people's war, which think back to Mao Zedong during the uh, the civil war within China, fighting the Japanese. It's that whole of society approach. They have active defense, which is really the military end. It's the pointy end of the spear, right? It's how do you attack things that are threatening your territory? And then they've got things that are, you know, very much less involved in the combat side of things, things like strengthening the army by science and technology, military reform, and military civil integration. Again, it's that holistic approach from the economic side, the societal side, and the military side of combining those levers of power in the PLA. So you you said informationization and intelligentization, right? Those are really an outgrowth of that strategic thinking. When we're talking about strengthening the army by science and technology, informationization and intelligentization are two steps down the path towards military modernization that the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, sees as their path forward. So informationization is all about having platforms that talk together and that use information technology to actually facilitate the use of the platform. A really easy example here is if you think about some of the road mobile missile systems that the PLA has, you know, before they would have levers on the side of one of their tells that would, they'd have to pull in order to get the actual tell into position, to park it, etc. Informationization would be then to take those manual levers off the side of the truck, put it into a computer screen that then you get to click and actually change the settings on the truck, right? That is informationization of the platform. And then taking that one step further, it's building in the systems that allows that individual tell to talk to other tells and a command truck and then back up to headquarters. And that's the broader connectivity behind informationization. Intelligentization now is just one step further. It's once you have everything talking and communicating, how can you integrate things like AI and things like smart systems in order to allow for rapid decision-making of a bunch of different platforms towards your end goal? Well, Dan, I, I really appreciate breaking that down, and it's amazing how you know warfare is continually evolving. And my next question is building off of that. Can you both explain how the push toward informationization and intelligentization ties into China's evolving approach to modern warfare, and how does each concept align with the Chinese strategic culture? Sure. So it builds into the strategy. You know, I, I talked about those, those five main points of strategic thinking. So informationization and, and intelligentization builds off of all of that. 
and it's it's a push towards making China have a modern military that's able to fight and win in local wars and specifically informationized local wars, right? So, you know, you gave the Desert Storm example in the first question. Networking different technologies and having the capability to make precision strikes on targets. These two aspects, the informationization and intelligentization, are meant to provide the CCP with that kind of strategic capability. So it is really the path forward for them to achieve that modern military that they want in order to have the effects at the pointy end of the spear that they need to push their political strategy forward. Well, Dennis, I want you to hop in on this question as well. Yes, uh, thank you. I think to a very real extent, both of these concepts are how China is reconciling with the information revolution that has been taking place over the past several decades. They're building towards this notion that China can engage in different types of information control in the modern battlefield, as well as take measures to disrupt an adversary's ability to also engage in this interconnectivity, this internet of war fighting things. So Dennis is spot on about talking about the information battle space, right? If you look at Chinese plans or their their doctrine behind their operations, part of informationization is controlling the information battle space because they believe that controlling that space, controlling the information is a key enabler for all of their services to be able to carry out operations like a joint firepower strike or a joint island landing campaign. So it's really the starting point for being able to fight a modern military conflict. Yeah, really, really fascinating what's going on here. In the Air Force, they've really emphasized for decades getting within an adversary's OODA loop. And for those that are unfamiliar, it's observing the problem, orienting to the problem, making a decision, and then acting on it. So we do this OODA loop to disrupt enemy decision-making by trying to think faster than they do. The United States is also developing a system called Joint All-Domain Command Control, or JADC2, meant to ensure that combat-relevant data gets from any sensor to every warfighter that they might need. So, Dan, how does the Chinese emphasis on this informationization and intelligentization compare to these concepts? Great question, Slick. So it it does compare to JADC2 in certain regards, right? The, the fundamental idea behind JADC2 is to connect sensors and shooters and then to aggregate those into kill webs, which just means that you can have a, a different sensor connect to a different shooter, but that shooter will be able to execute a course of action or a, or a kill chain on a specific target. And that is one of the fundamental goals of informationization from the Chinese side of the equation, right? So yes, it, it's like that in certain regards. Now, the step towards intelligentization, and I know JADC2 as a concept itself is currently evolving, um, that the Chinese side of it, what they want to see is they want to have AI or a smart system be able to take all of that data, integrate it, and then spit out a course of action for 
the PLA and more specifically the CCP to be able to decide upon, you know, taking that one step further, maybe they'll have it such that the AI or, or the decision making will actually just execute. Um, but I think we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Yeah. When we think about how China approaches modern warfare, there's always a conversation with how they perceive their main competitors. It's in the nature of conflict and competition that people, to a certain extent, borrow notes from one another, and there's a certain amount of imitation. But there's a trap when we start to conflate terms. So while there's a strong degree of similarity between how we approach modern warfare and how China approaches modern warfare, they're different enough that they need to be treated as distinct. Well, Dan and Dennis, you know, you guys are both studying this stuff every day, and we see a lot of new technology coming out of China, and they are developing drones, unmanned vessels, hypersonics, and so many more things. I really wonder, uh, through your lens, you know, what sorts of emerging capabilities do you see as most critical to allowing China to meet their goals? As, a, as the AI guy, I'm going to have to bring up this idea that there's a whole class of technologies and tools that China is developing, but there's a structure that underwrites most of that. And that's China's ability to both develop AI tools and deal with large amounts of data. As a result, I'm gonna say that probably one of the most significant emerging capabilities that China has is the ability to sort through the truly enormous amount of information and data that they need to in order to enable their approaches to modern conflict and strategic competition more generally. Yeah, Dennis, I think you're spot on there. The other thing that I do see, um, you know, they're not sexy capabilities, so to speak, uh, but a lot of more sensor systems to be able to gather that data as well. So sorting through it is absolutely one massive problem that the PLA faces, but I do see that at the same time that they're trying to figure out how to sort the data, they are also building and deploying more systems that are able to gather that data as an input to the systems that will then sort it. So, you know, things like satellite systems and radar systems on the ground and having things like uh, electronic intelligence ships that they're deploying and things like their, their KJ-500 the airborne early warning and control aircraft that's able to gather that information in the battle space to then go back and then be processed uh, either at command headquarters or through some other different systems. Well, gentlemen, you know, beyond just platforms, China is also reportedly planning to proliferate LEO satellites or low Earth orbit satellites significantly uh, in the coming years. So, Dan, for those, you know, that are less familiar, can you explain why this proliferation is strategically important for China and what it says about their own perceived vulnerabilities? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, you know, I just mentioned the idea of these satellite constellations that they want to put up in order to get more access to data. The big one that China is looking at right now, the PLEO, so proliferated low Earth orbit constellation that they're calling the National Net constellation. And this is really, it's about 13,000 satellites. It's envisioned for 2030. And it's China's answer to not just Starlink, but to their need 
to be able to have the ISR capabilities at range that really, really enables a modern military. So, you know, when you think of the U.S. and how we are able to actually operate at really far distances with pretty good connectivity, I would say, it's an integrated system of satellites with an air layer, which involves either manned platforms or unmanned platforms, and then a ground layer, right? You've got a guy or a girl on the ground that has to make a decision, and they use this long-armed connectivity chain through ground to air to space to reach back home and be able to actually have command decision-making or, you know, to call on support. So that's what China's after, really, with developing this LEO constellation. It's having the ability to push out beyond their borders with significant fidelity in their communications infrastructure so that they will have the option to call back home and say, hey, do I have the green light to do this or that? Or, hey, I need support. Can you send it? So National Net Constellation, is it's really big. And it's not just the comms, it's also the ISR, think targeting data. Um, and there's already a few hundred of these satellites on orbit. I mentioned what the US system kind of roughly looks like, and that is what China envisions having in the future as well. I've run across some different graphics in Chinese that discuss the same kind of concept, which is a ground layer, an air layer with unmanned and manned systems, a low Earth orbit, and then the other orbits on top of that as integrated layers of this network that they can rapidly aggregate in conflict to be able to provide that security of comms and security of C2 in a contested information battle space. Yeah, I mean, what is happening in space is just, it's really mind-blowing as a, as a domain that our adversaries have wanted to weaponize, if you will, and we're having to respond. But I don't think that the average American realizes how much uh, payload is going up every week, especially from other countries. So I do want to shift a little bit as I'm kind of rethinking, and I know that there's a little, been a little bit of debate, uh, you know, whether or not this idea of intelligentization uh, is truly distinct from informationization, or is it just an outgrowth? So I want to hear from both of you. What is your take? And, you know, does it really represent a real qualitative change in military capabilities, or is it more of an evolution of the information technology progress we've already seen? I think it's fair to say that it's more of an evolution. As different militaries try to understand new capabilities and what they can do with it, operational concepts change slightly as they're trying to accomplish their overall goals. But for the most part, I think this was touched upon a little bit earlier, I think that they are, if not incremental steps in approaching a modern vision of warfare, they're at the very least interrelated enough that you can call it an outgrowth. Yeah, and in terms of the terminology that's used, the idea of informationization involves an aspect of intelligentization. I was watching one of the recent Zhuhai air shows. It's a, a big air show that China puts on that they like to show off new capabilities during. In an interview segment, there was a the gentleman speaking about this idea of intelligentization. Um, and it's in Chinese, it's zhenanghua. And we translate that as intelligentization, right? But he's he's describing 
this idea of zhi or intelligentization as similar to having a smartphone, right? Where you have a plethora of options at your disposal. Think apps where, hey, I need to do something. I can open this app and it will help me order food or do banking, right? And his, his analogy was that when thinking about military capabilities and this idea of intelligentization, it's really similar to that of a smartphone where take a tank, for example, as the gentleman used. With the tank, you want to have a variety of options on that one platform that allows you to address threats at different ranges. So if there's something insanely close to the tank, you need to have an option for how can I neutralize that threat. Medium range, is there something on the tank that allows them to engage a target in that zone? And then long range, same idea, right? So the intelligentization aspect that this gentleman was discussing came down to how can you have a platform that has very many different capabilities to address threats at different ranges based on the situation at hand? So as, as far as the terminology, informationization and intelligentization, I think informationization and this notion of making the platform itself smart, have these sensing capabilities on the platform to be able to enable that kill chain or that kill web, it involves a little bit of this intelligentization notion of yes, options at different ranges, sensor systems that give you the options at different ranges, right? And the targeting data to actually execute, neutralize that threat. In terms of the broader scope of what intelligentization could be, Dennis has spoken about it. It's the idea of having a integrated system that does all those fancy bells and whistles that you think of with AI enabled kill chains, having things that can rapidly aggregate all of all of those buzzwords and all of the long term development that is necessary to actually achieve that. And quite frankly, nobody has yet. So it is all theory. Um, but it it will, as the PLA envisions it, they'll be marching down that path as it gets closer to twenty forty nine. Well, Dan, you know, we keep hearing about these exercises over around the South China Sea and and around Taiwan. So last April, China conducted three days of sustained military exercises around Taiwan called Joint Sword. And during these exercises, they simulated long range precision strikes on and around Taiwan. So what does China conducting these exercises really mean about both China's intentions toward Taiwan and their progress creating a, quote, world class military? Yeah, absolutely. So Joint Sword, that exercise, which was simulated strikes on Taiwan, I mean, you know, it is what it is. So a lot of times we're thinking about will the PLA and will the CCP decide to attack Taiwan? And a lot of our internal policy debates are centered on that question. Well, this was a very direct show of force from the PLA side that says, hey, we're thinking about this. And by the way, in simulations, we're able to actually strike a lot of critical nodes on Taiwan. Um, In terms of like capabilities, right? What it does demonstrate is that when you're looking at the PLA from a capabilities perspective, across their services, 
they have long range fires that they can actually get targeting data to and execute strikes on a whole variety of different things on the Taiwanese side. Um, policy wise, you know, in terms of whether or not the CCP will actually try to invade Taiwan, um, I'm still leery on that. I don't think it will happen, but this is an act of deterrence that they're using just to show Taiwan, hey, you know, if you're doing stuff that we don't like you do, we have this as a option. Dan, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Dennis, I know you do a lot of work on uh, emerging technology and AI specifically, and obviously there's been a lot of progress uh, in AI globally in the last year or so. So what do you see as some of the biggest developments when it comes to how AI could impact international security? That's a great question. One of the things that we are trying to wrestle with the most is thinking through some of the implications not just of the AI tools themselves, but how they're built and constructed. A few years ago, it was a dominant paradigm that the idea was you just have more information, more data, more compute, and all of the problems that you're dealing with will solve themselves. Now we are increasingly aware of some of the vulnerabilities that are within that data. Some of this was highlighted by some of the things like large language models, such as ChatGPT which is this idea that you could feed into a prompt and then it will spit something back out to you as an answer. But we know that these things hallucinate. And as we understand that, we're also trying to reconcile with the idea that maybe some of the classification algorithms that we use might have flaws, or maybe there are structural biases within the data processes themselves, which means that this now opens up a new interesting aspect to national security and international competition. That being, having large data lakes isn't enough. They need to be protected from bad information because the more bad information enters into your data lake, the more flawed the AI algorithms that you develop will become. In short, we're dealing with a problem where adversaries might try to develop ways of introducing certain flaws and biases into our own information landscapes to alter them. Often we talk about data lakes and data poisoning. In, in a sense, we now need to wrestle with the notion that we may need to deal with adversaries who are trying to poison our data lakes. And in return, the future of competition might be about how to safeguard our own information that we use to develop our AI tools while ensuring that our competitors and our adversaries are vulnerable to this type of distortion. Yeah, it's really interesting, Dennis, when you said you know that AI hallucinates, right? It's trying to, to, to figure out based on the input and, and what it has, the outcome is uh, out of this world, if you will. But I really appreciate that, that perspective. Um, I really want to ask you directly, with regard to China's progress on their specific AI, how are they doing when it comes to cutting edge areas like you know generative AI models? And are there any constraints or challenges that are limiting just how advanced their capabilities can become? The short answer is yes. The long answer is it's, it's complicated. So one of the things about generative AI is that some of the architectures are deceptively simple. They just require large amounts of data and large amounts of compute. The underlying technology behind ChatGPT had been around for years. 
But once it started getting public attention, the entire world took notice. Both our partners and allies, as well as our competitors, all sought to develop their own versions of ChatGPT or LLM-like models. And we started to deal with something that we might not have necessarily expected. Our competitors are trying to imitate and innovate in this space, but there are certain problems that come with imitation, particularly when it comes to the structure of their own data. So the Chinese information landscape is one that's dynamically censored. So if you wanted to build a, a CCP GPT, it would need to struggle with this idea of temporal censorship, which is this notion that you could say stuff today that you couldn't say 10 years ago, but far more often, it's what you could say 10 years ago you can't say today. China's reconciling and trying to really tackle this notion that some of the tools that they're developing might not always provide outputs that they want. And we're seeing increased movement in this space that they're trying to constrain some of these more generative content models so that they aren't producing content that could actually be harmful to their regime stability. And this is a very difficult problem to manage because the nature of an LLM is that it's brute forcing the language problem, the natural language problem, by having more data and more parameters. Whereas when you're trying to make an ideologically censored or constricted model, you need to find a way to carefully curate its data sets so that it's not producing outputs that would be undesirable for the CCP. And we saw early developments in China's generative models were ultimately abandoned or heavily censored within weeks or months of their being produced. And right now they're trying to put forward a model that is able to realistically compete with some of the models made in the United States while also remaining ideologically consistent. And this is a difficult problem to work with. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting point that you bring up, and I'm just sitting here thinking as you're providing that answer that, yeah, if somebody in China types in, you know, how do you live a better life, and it starts giving them, start with a, a lemonade stand, and you can start your capitalist dream, and uh, and that's what really works well if you want to live a, a rich and wonderful life. <laughs> I'm sure that that's probably not the answer that they want coming out of the other side of their AI, right? Uh, def definitely not. Um I will say that they are a little bit less constrained when they aren't enforcing their algorithms to treat a domestic audience. So the types of LLMs that they might use in a foreign sphere might be significantly less constrained. All right, Dan and Dennis, you've given me a lot to think about here. And really what we're starting to see, especially, you know, like a, a few weeks back, we saw reports about Chinese malware being discovered in U.S. military-based cyber infrastructure. The Washington Post also recently reported on a major hack by China in 2020 into Japan's uh, defense ministry. So what do these reports say about China's growing cyber capabilities? So... Essentially, what it what it means is that the the PLA is becoming more aggressive in its use of cyber operations to disrupt their adversaries. They have the PLA Strategic Support Force, which is their designated 
cyber, space, and electromagnetic spectrum force. And they really see these kinds of cyber operations as disruptive to their adversaries' day-to-day existence. It's also obviously gathering data on who their adversaries are, who's in the military, what positions do they hold. When we think back to DOD records that were you know, hijacked, for lack of a better word, a few years ago, it's all gathering information, but it's also injecting uncertainty into China's adversaries' minds on whether or not they will be secure from a more aggressive cyber attack. One could think of a world in which China uses access to electrical grids and key nodes of critical infrastructure as a weapon to disrupt and therefore hinder the capabilities of the U.S. or Japan in wartime, and that would be pretty devastating. I think this also highlights, and Dan's completely right, but I think this also highlights the degree to which civilian supporting infrastructure that performs auxiliary functions and support to the day-to-day functions of the United States military is also vulnerable. Many of these systems were never designed with an adversary in mind, and a lot of them are not well-equipped to deal with sophisticated threats. As a result, we might find that there's a great deal of vulnerability here that is unmapped and we'll need to wrestle with moving forward. Well, gentlemen, from a policy perspective, what are both of your assessments of China's offensive cyber capabilities regarding uh, the U.S. military? Do you see something like what was in the book Ghost Fleet, where you know all of our F-35s get hacked or something a lot more subtle? Uh, and how do you see Chinese offensive cyber operations fitting into their overarching military strategy? So I don't think it's going to – the goal is not Ghost Fleet necessarily. Uh, The goal for the PLA in this regard is to disrupt enough of the U.S. force flow so that they don't have the capabilities on the bleeding edge of the conflict to actually stop China in whatever they want to be doing, right? Um, So it's not as much about shutting down the F-35s as it is disrupting the logistics hub that supports those F-35s. If you shut down the uh, U.S. transcom and stop force flow into the theater, then you won't even have to fight the F-35s in the airspace. You'll be able to actually stop the U.S. from completing their time phase force deployment and in the necessary time to be able to get into a shooting war. So I, I think that is really the goal in both practicing these cyber operations as well as in wartime, how they would be executed. That being said, you know, absolutely, there is a component or multiple components of the PLA focused on denying that information battle space through uh, electromagnetic spectrum operations within the China periphery. There's massive systems on the ground as well as in the air that are meant to deny comms links to be able to shut down uh, the U.S. as it's operating against China. Um, but, But realistically, these kinds of cyber operations, the ones that are targeting infrastructure, are aimed at disrupting the force flow to begin with. I think Dan's spot on again. 
The main thing that people have a habit of focusing on are these big vulnerabilities within some of our most valuable assets. But sustaining the ability to carry on an extended military operation often depends on things that people don't give a lot of care and consideration to. As a result, I think that it's going to be shaping the ability to support the F-35 and make sure that it's not able to engage in the types of operations that we would like them to. That's going to be the main focus of future cyber operations rather than targeting the asset itself. Well, Dennis, what defenses or countermeasures do you see as best methods to help stop or mitigate Chinese cyber intrusion efforts? Well, there's a surprisingly large number of legacy systems, particularly on the civilian infrastructure side of things, that really need to be redressed. Many vulnerabilities, even if they are technical in nature, depend on the humans who operate it and the resources that are dedicated to safeguard their systems. Moving forward, I think that probably the most significant thing that we could do to disrupt future cyber intrusions is to find a way to detect where we're vulnerable ourselves and to dedicate resources to ensuring that civilian infrastructure that we need in order to carry on any type of operation is not going to be the first casualty of any future conflict. Well, this question is for both of you because it seems that, you know, one of the goals of Chinese doctrine is basically to convince adversaries to get up without putting up a fight, right? I mean, I've heard some people say we're already fighting World War III without a shot being fired. So um, when you guys evaluate and assess China's capabilities, how do you ensure that we're creating an accurate picture of China without making the PLA look like this 10-foot tall giant? You know, at the end of the day, they are people that are operating systems and they could just be conscripts that, you know, really don't uh, believe in the fight. So, so what are you guys seeing here? That's a great question, Slick. It is really difficult to look at all these things like this future tech and not think of a 10-foot-tall giant, somebody that is beating you everywhere. Um, what I can say is when I'm looking at this problem set, as you mentioned, it always goes back to the people. These are men and women operating these platforms for the PLA, for the CCP, and a lot of times it's ideologically driven. So yeah, the members of the PLA, they might not entirely be ideologically aligned with the CCP. Recently, the PLA rocket force leadership was all shaken up by Xi Jinping because probably for ideological reasons. So there's an incredible political vulnerability there. And in terms of the actual operational capability, you know, we've seen a few joint exercises, large-scale joint exercises, think in response to uh, Speaker of the House Pelosi, her visit to Taiwan, as well as uh, the joint sword exercises earlier this year, and even more recently, more operations that were taking place because China was upset with Taiwan. Um, but these really show us the bounds of where Chinese capabilities are right now. So a lot of missile systems from the PLA, you know, those, those are great in theory. But if you can't actually get targeting data and strike what you want to with a long-range missile system, 
then it it's not having the effect that you need for it from the PLA perspective, right? So I think in terms of the 10 foot tall giant, the the PLA has not been battle hardened like we have in the US. So there's a lot of individual agency for the US military in terms of carrying out operations that the PLA does not have. And in terms of capabilities, you know, we've we've tested these things. You know, going back to the desert storm analogy, we have done some of these integrated operations before. The PLA has only done them in exercises and not in wartime. And and when it comes down to military problems, right? Giving a military solution for a political objective, that is something that has to be trained and, and you know hardened in the the forge and fire of warfare. And we have that and they do not. I think Dan is spot on here yet again. And one of the things that I feel is the most common component towards discussions about China and China's capabilities is that it is our pacing threat. It is how the United States judges our own capabilities. And it's how we understand how our adversaries might try to shape and compete against us in the future. But we also have a very bad habit of assuming the worst about the capabilities of our adversaries and underestimating our own capabilities. Part of this is that we spent too many years fighting irregular wars in the Middle East. But we can see that the adversaries that we thought were significantly more capable are just not quite living up to what we thought they would be. I think we don't see an example of this more clearly than in the case of Russia and Ukraine. We played them up as a very significant pacing threat, only to find out that most of our fears were relatively unjustified. China is a capable competitor. It is developing tools and techniques that look an awful lot like ours. And this is something that we haven't had to deal with in quite a long time. But they are untested. They haven't fought in wars. And it's unclear the extent to which they will be able to carry out their vision of modern warfare. Because it's very easy to talk about a capability. But it's very hard to prove. Yeah, that, that is a great and sobering point. I really appreciate your perspective. And of course, it's always tough when we run out of time here on the Aerospace Advantage. Uh, but unfortunately, that is the case. So I want to say a sincere thanks to you, Dennis and Dan, for coming back onto the show to talk to us about these issues that are really affecting what's going on, uh, especially for the folks in Taiwan right now, but of course, uh, our military and big picture decision making that we're, we're having to do here in the United States. So thanks again for being here. Thank you so much, Slick. It's always awesome to be on the Aerospace Advantage. Thanks. It's been a truly wonderful first time. Thank you. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. 
If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.